At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. Almighty God, Father, Son, Spirit, we are thankful that you are a God who speaks and that you have spoken to us through this, your word. And so Lord, this morning, would we hear your voice? Would we hear from you, Jesus? And would we know what you have done for us so that we might live to be new people out of that? Lord, may our listening this morning be worship to you. May my, my, my preaching this morning be worship unto you. May our faith grow and our obedience rise as acts of worship to you because of your great grace. So now help us as we, as we come to your word, speak to this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, have you ever put the wrong fuel in your vehicle before? Any, anybody, I'm just curious, anybody put unleaded in the diesel engine? No, nobody? Okay, well, I haven't either, um, which, is, which is relieving uh, there, but I know of somebody who did. Every spring, uh, the church that I served at in California as a youth pastor would send a team of students down to Mexicali, Mexico for uh, spring break right after Easter for a mission trip to partner with some local uh, churches there in that city to do some outreach and serve the churches and build buildings and just be a, a source of grace and mercy to those, uh, to those churches and those communities. And so we'd fill up a bus with 50 or so students. I, I don't know what the legal number for us to actually be able to have in the bus was, but I'm sure we exceeded it several times over on a few of those trips. And we would just take the 700 mile or so drive down, uh, down the spine of California, about 12 hours to the city of Mexicali and serve these churches. And it was a great time every year. It was one of the highlights of our student ministry calendar and one of the ways that we would serve. Um, and it was all great until the year that someone, and, and I'm not pointing fingers, I'm not naming names this morning, except that it wasn't me, someone put the wrong fuel in the bus. Uh, I think it was the youth pastor responsible for that. Again, not me. I just want to deniability out there as much as I can get. Uh, he actually put unleaded in the bus instead of the diesel fuel that it required. Now, when you've got a trip like that all ready to go and you're planned and, and everything comes down to some timing, when that, when that throws it all off, then everything is out of sorts. And so the bus gets about 10 miles down the road, breaks down, and the whole team's got to come back. We've got to find a new bus. I mean, it's just, it, it set the trip off on the wrong foot completely. The students were all kind of grumbly and achy now. Instead of 12 hours in a bus with 50 of their best friends, now they've got to be like 14, 16 hours. And, and it just set things off wrong. Bad fuel, the wrong fuel to do the right job in the wrong vehicle, just set it all up in a way that didn't work. Well, let me ask you this. What happens when we as people try and use the wrong fuel, the wrong motivation, if you will, to be new people in Christ? What happens in our lives when we try and use the wrong motivations, empty motivations, weak motivations to make us new? 
I believe that many Christians today, maybe you are one of them, the self, yourself this morning, we're using the wrong motivation, the wrong fuel to bring about transformation in our lives. We believe that the scriptures tell us, they encourage us that we are to be new people in Christ. Behold, all things are new. We are new creatures, new creations in Jesus. And, and we, we know that in the life that we have here and now, in, in who we are here and now, we're not there yet. We're kind of on this, like, well, getting new, new-ish path, but we haven't arrived yet. And we know the destination is there. And so we think about, how do I go from being the kind of annoying, sinful, awful me that's here today to that, that new, glorious, even perfect image of Christ, new being down the road? How do I get there? And what we do is, in thinking about the destination, we choose the wrong fuel, the wrong empowerment, to get us along the way. The fuel that most Christians use today, that many of us still use, is the fuel of the law, the legalism of the law, to get us there. We believe that if we obey the rules, that if we follow God's law to the letter, to the T, that'll motivate us to be good. But that source, the law itself, is completely inadequate for how God has designed us to be transformed. The fuel of following the law in order to be Christ-like is the wrong fuel. It's empty. Instead, we need a better fuel. We need a superior fuel. We need a fuel that, that will last for a long time, a motivation that will sustain us through the, the high days and the low days of our walk with Jesus to help us get there help us belong and understand who we are in Christ. And that fuel for that motivation, that, that motivation to help us grow in Christ, it's not the law. It's the reality that we belong to Jesus. The reality that allows you to grow in Christ isn't following the rules or being a legalist. It's the new and better power of the reality that you belong to Christ. What will help you grow as a Christian, what will sustain you in the days in which you're doing well and in the days in which you're struggling, you're weak, you're tempted, isn't the fact that you've followed the rules and now God finally gets it and sees that you're worthy of being on his team. What will sustain you is the power of realizing that you already belong to Christ because of what he has done. And out of belonging to Christ, you can bear fruit for Christ. Let me, let me put it this way. Belonging to Christ leads to bearing fruit in Christ. Belonging to Christ leads to bearing fruit in Christ. I want to encourage you this morning to see how belonging to Christ, that's the first thing. Belonging to Jesus is the proper way. It's the proper motivation. It's the proper, it's the right fuel to help you grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. Not duty, to obeying the rules. That won't get you very far. But standing on the sure footing that you belong to Jesus and letting that reality inform and shape all of your life will carry you through and lead you and bring you to being a person who's bearing fruit in Christ. Well, what does that look like? How does belonging to Christ lead to bearing fruit in Christ? Why isn't just following the rules enough for us? Well, Paul here in this text in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, begins to deal with this issue of the law. He's, if you remember, he's made the statement, we as followers of Jesus are not under law any longer, but we're under grace. 
In fact, we're freed from the law, we're freed from sin, we're under God's grace. And, and Paul, recognizing that, has brought up some questions that the Roman Christians, maybe other Christians that he's interacted with, have, have asked. They want to know, should we keep sinning then so that grace may abound? I mean, if you say the law is gone, or like we're, we're not under the law anymore, you're going to have a whole bunch of people that are just going to do whatever they want. And that's going to make a mess. They're going to be miserable sinners. They're going to make chaos in this world. Like evil is going to grow. We need the law. I mean, we need the law to keep us in line. We need the rules so that we don't jump the, the, the barriers and we get out of line, as it were. We need the rules to keep us as being good people. If we don't, if we don't exist under the law anymore, but now we exist under grace, well, what's to keep us from, from sin? What's to keep us from chaos? Paul's answer to that has been real clear. Absolutely not. We shouldn't continue in sin because grace abounds. We, we shouldn't sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. No. There's a new life here for us. That new life is Christ, but the motivation, the fuel that powers us in that life isn't the law itself. It's Christ and belonging to him. The reality of our union with Jesus is what spurs and motivates us on in growing in Christ. And, and so Paul here now in chapter 7 begins to answer specifically this question about the law. What do we do with it? How, how is it inadequate for us? How does our belonging to Christ help us really grow in him? Paul lays out three realities that show our belonging to Christ is what fuels our new life, not legalism or just obeying all of the rules. Let me show us these three realities here in verses 1 through 6. Reality number one is that belonging to Christ releases us from the law. It releases us from the power of the law. The fact that we belong to Christ, it, it frees us up from strict obedience and legalism to, to the law. Now, now, Paul lays this principle down, and he helps us grasp it in an illustration that, that he envisions what this would look like. Look with me at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brothers... I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And it comes back to this question about the law, and he says, hey, brothers, sisters, like you, we know the law, right? Okay, we're, we're good church people. We show up, we hear, we hear the law of God, we hear the commands of God. You know the Ten Commandments, I hope, things like don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Oh, and there's some other ones like worship God above all him shall you hold as high as. Don't make idols and worship them. Keep God's name holy. Those, those are the law, right? We know those things. And so he's speaking to us here as well. He's speaking to us who know the law. And he says, think about this, realize this. The law itself is binding, it's obligating on a person only as long as he lives. When you die, you're free from that law doesn't hold power anymore over you. You're not obligated to it any longer. Verse 2, though, and he begins to lean into an illustration. He wants to give us a metaphor to think about the truth of this principle here in verse 1. The illustration, and let me read this here. He says in verse 2, he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, or in the same way, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I think this illustration really helps us capture what is at Paul's heart here. This married woman, she's bound by the law. The documents have been signed. It's legally binding that she stays faithful and with her husband. She's obligated to the law to remain with her husband, to be wed to him while he lives. 
But the day her husband dies, she's freed from that law. She's not obligated to it anymore. Her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So, so as he lives, this is verse 3, as he lives, if she's with another man, living with him, she's an adulteress, she's in sin. But once her husband dies, she can marry another man. She's free from that law. She's not an adulteress any longer. The point or the implication of that illustration is found in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now here Paul kind of shifts the metaphor. He places us in a different seat and he says, you've died. When This is what he's taught before earlier in chapter 6. When Christ died on the cross, you being united to him by faith, you died as well. Sin has no more power, no more mastery over you. When, when Christ died on the cross, his point here in verse 4, you've died to the law as well. You're freed from the obligation to the law. You're freed and liberated for another. This law of marriage helps us see the picture of our relationship in regard to Christ and to the law itself. We have been united with Christ through faith. When we've trusted Jesus We've seen our sin and our need, and we've come to him by faith alone. God's declared us righteous. He's justified us. He's adopted us. He's brought us into his family, and he's united us with Christ. That's what baptism depicts, remember? We're united with Christ, and so just as Christ has died, so we too have died, and in our death, we are dead to the law. We're freed from the law. We're no longer under the shackles and obligation of the law. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, that's terrifying, because doesn't the law really help us? Isn't the law really a good thing? Yeah, it is. But I'm going to let Nathan explain that next week, uh, so you just need to come back and figure out what's there. Paul's point here in this passage is that you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. Belonging to Christ releases us from obligation and obedience to the law. And what does this have to do with bearing fruit? Okay, I'm freed from the law no longer under obligation to it. How does this have anything to do with my being new, my being like Christ? While we are wed to one power, we are obligated to that power. While we are, if I can use the marriage illustration, married to the law, we are obligated to that power. But once we have died, and we died in Christ, we're freed from our obligation to that power. The implication is that being new isn't going to come by us obeying the law. Paul has a profound statement here about what the law can and can't do in and for us. Obedience to the law, following its regulations and statutes, will not clean you up and make you new. And that's the distinction that many of us need to see. We believe that if I obey all the rules, if I do all the right things, if I show up in the right way, if I morally cross all the T's and dot all the I's perfectly, then finally God will accept me. Then finally, I, you know, he won't kick me out of the house. He won't be disappointed in me. He'll be glad I'm around and look at what a good moral person you are. I'm so glad that you followed all the rules. We, we live in that, that fear that we will, will get cast out. But that's legalism. Obedience to the law, following its regulations and statutes, will not clean you up. Christians need to be clear that legalism won't get you approval before God. We, we need to hear this because we're so quick. I mean, we are lightning fast to make up laws about who's in and who's out. 
We build fences all the time, often around external manners, to define and describe who we think good Christians are and who are carnal Christians or, or maybe not Christians at all. And we use these external things to describe what's a good holy person and who's not. Let me give you some examples of things. Here's some statements that I just hear from time to time. One, Christians don't listen to rock and roll. That, that one's maybe an older one, but maybe some of you hear still that from time to time. Right? Really? And yet we define who's godly and who's not by whether they listen to music like that. Or here's another one. Christians don't get tattoos. Again, we're defining and describing who's in and out by external matters. Christians don't read Harry Potter, you know? Like, again, external legalistic things. They do, man. They do. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right, Michael. <laughs> Christians don't vote Democrat. Again, we use external things to define who's in and out. It's legalism. If you're always saying Christians don't, you're just setting up rules to follow, thinking that that's what gets you acceptance before God. When you say if you follow this or that made man-made law, and by that law obedience is what gets you accepted, you're not walking in the gospel. Friends, when we became a Christian, we were crucified with Christ, united with him. And that means we died to the law. And our attempts to earn status with God or define who is in or who is out on the basis of obedience to the law, that's a failure to believe what Jesus has done for you. You're adding to the gospel. It's Jesus plus. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have certain ethical and moral standards. It doesn't mean we, walk, we don't walk in newness of life, that we're just free to do whatever we want. But it does mean that the law is not the standard we use to determine who's approved by God and who's not. So end the legalism. Some of you are just weighed down by legalism in your own heart. You can't function a day without trying to fulfill the law and obligate yourself to the rules. And it's a burden. It's a heavy weight that is just dragging you down. And you wonder, is there ever going to be a day in which God finally accepts you, in which he's actually happy with you? Friend, just know, hear the, hear the reality of what Scripture says in Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Or I'll give a little spoiler alert. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free. The law, the law isn't going to do it for you. So liberate yourself. Be liberated by Christ and his work from the law. Don't wear that burden. Don't seek legalism to make you new. End the judgmental legalism you place on others. That's, that's where so many of us as Christians, we look down our nose at others who aren't like us, who, who don't behave like us, who claim the name of Christ and who said they've believed and are trusting Christ. And we're like, well, they're not as morally good as I am. They don't hold the same particular external values that I do. And so obviously they're not as good Christians. Like, that's, that's horrible. Be freed from the legalism. End the judgmental legalism that you place over other people who confess the gospel of Christ just as you do. You see, belonging to Christ releases us from the law. That's the first reality here. But the second reality is this. It doesn't just release us to be free to do whatever we want, however we want, wherever we want. We're not just independent people now. 
The freedom that we have actually connects us and brings us to belonging with another. It weds us to Christ. So belonging to Christ, secondly, weds us to him. Now, Paul keeps using this, this illustration of marriage to kind of color what he's talking about here, and, and it's helpful for us there in the middle part of verse 4. He says, so likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that, or here's the purpose of what your death has done in Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. The implication of being freed from the law is not that we're independent on our own, but that we have a new relationship, namely that we belong to Christ. Jesus has died for us so that we we belong to him. Christ liberates us from the law, from trying to gain acceptance through the law, by his flesh and blood, by his body. Specifically, Paul is speaking of Christ coming on our behalf, being a perfect, sinless man, living perfectly on our behalf, and then dying on the cross in our place. He went to the suffering and torment and agony of the cross for you and me to liberate us so that we might belong to him. It's his work to bring us to himself. And he has been raised from the dead so that our life is in him. All that to say, Jesus has done absolutely and completely everything we need. He has actually purchased our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. And as Paul is just using this metaphor, he's saying here, think of Christ as your husband. Consider him, you may belong to him. You're wed to him who's been raised from the dead. How glorious good news that is. He didn't just die for us, but he's been raised to life for us. And it might be kind of odd for us to think about Christ as our husband. I don't know how many of you put that frame of thinking in your mind, Jesus, my husband. But this is actually the language of the scriptures in regard to God's relationship with his people. This is how the Bible describes how God views his covenant purposes and who he is for us in in the Bible. It's, It's a beautiful way of describing and depicting this relationship, especially when we think about the other lovers that surround us and compete for our affections. So in the Old Testament, God speaks to Israel, his people, through the prophet Hosea, and he says this, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth or wed you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord to think of God, to think of Christ as our husband is that we belong to him. He is ours. We, we experience and know him. We know his righteousness, his justice, his steadfast love, his mercy, his faithfulness. We know God. It's the description of knowing him and having him as our husband. Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So the New Testament bears witness of this idea of God, Christ as our husband. Paul says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. He's speaking of the church here. Like, I feel jealous for you. Since I betrayed you, I was like your best man and the, the pastor who stood at the altar giving your, your vows. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Again, a depiction of, of God's relationship with us, of Christ with us as our husband. The analogy is here for us to consider how we are to see ourselves in Christ. One of the things that often comes up in counseling with couples, especially before they get married, is the nature of their relationship with, with, other, with their families. Marriage is always an act of leaving and joining. 
In the first words of the Bible, God defines marriage, and he spells out what that relationship means and what it looks like. Genesis 2, 24, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, the verbs here are really clear. Leave, depart from, and then hold fast or, or cleave or cling to. In the marriage relationship, you have a new relationship and a new bond and a new family priority. The old family is not the family of priority anymore. It's not the family of devotion anymore. You're setting out and starting a new thing. In fact, often where there's trouble in marriage, especially in the early years, it's usually because one or both of the two have struggled with the leaving part. The point is this. If Christ has died and been raised for us, and we are by faith united with Christ, we belong to him, then it would be inconsistent for us to go back to the old family. It'd be inconsistent. It'd be unfaithful for us to go back to the old ways, to the old husband, as it were, the law. We've been freed, and now we're with Christ. He is our husband. It would be more inconsistent even to go looking for other lovers. That's spiritual adultery. When we are wed to Christ, we belong to him. And he is an excellent husband. What kind of husband is Christ? What kind of excellent, glorious, good husband is he? I love how Paul uses this illustration of how husbands should love their wives in Ephesians 5 to display how excellent a husband Christ is. Many times we hear this as the moral imperative for how husbands should treat their wives, and that's there. But I want you to hear this passage this morning about what Christ has done for the church. That's the ultimate reality here. So Paul says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. When you think about Christ as our husband, think about what he has done for us, his people, the church. He sacrificed himself. He gave himself up for us completely. He laid his life and all of it down for you and me. The other language that Paul uses is that he sanctifies the church. He makes her holy. Christ ever lives to intercede for us, to pray for us, and to see us brought to newness of life. He, in his work of redemption, came and lived perfectly for us and died on our behalf and was raised to life again so that we would be new people. He sends his spirit into each of us so that we would grow and bear the fruit of the spirit. Our husband, Christ, sanctifies his bride. He cleanses his bride. Don't think of yourself as, as finally coming into the church as somebody who's cleaned up and worthy and really got a lot going on, and boy, isn't Christ happy to see you. We are not the trophy wife of Jesus. We, we are the people who are in the gutter, broken, hostile, messy, ruined, we bear no worth of our own. And Christ, he redeems us. And he brings us in. And he washes us. And he cleanses us. And he declares we're beautiful because of what he has done. 
Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. He does everything to make us flourish in him. He will get us home. He will present us to himself pure and spotless and glorious. That's the kind of husband you have in Christ. He's excellent in every way. Oh, and free bit of application for us here, just a little extra. Husbands, that's what we're called to be for our wives. Men, we've got to stand up to this call. This is what we are called to be for the wives that we are married to, that we would display Jesus in this way to our wives, that we would see them flourish and grow and be nourished. That's what Jesus has done for us. Since we have died to sin, we've died to the law, and we've been wed to Christ, we have a new life, a new family, a new love. So it calls us away from being spiritual adulterers. If you go back to the old way of life, living in bondage to sin, loving the flesh, betraying the union that you have with Christ, it's probably worth asking the question, do you really belong to him? Has there been true repentance and true faith? So let's return to our faithful and glorious husband, Christ, who loves us and has given himself for us. Belonging to Christ weds us to Christ, which means we have a new relationship, a new family. Belonging to Christ leads us to bear fruit because we've been released from the law and we've been wed to Christ. And so thirdly here, belonging to Christ leads us to bear fruit because belonging to Christ empowers us to have a new way to serve. Belonging to Christ empowers a new way to serve in our lives. Here's where the fuel comes in. Here's where having the right fuel shows itself up in our lives. This is Paul's entire point, the result of it anyway, in these verses. Why are we not to continue in sin? Why should we fight our sin and not let sin abound in our life? Because Christ has done for us everything, this is the end of verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The whole result of his work on our behalf, his life, his death, his resurrection, is so that we would display him. We would bear fruit for him. We would be a people that exalt and glorify him in everything. Our redemption and salvation has the purpose of you and I living to be faithful and fruitful for God. Now, the marriage metaphor is still here. In, in the same general way, general way that marriages result in children being born as a result of the marriage union, so being united to Christ, in being united to Christ, the Christian is to bear the fruit of godliness, or we're to have the children of godliness, as it were. Verse 5 brings out the contrast of this. In the old way, for while we were living in the flesh, in our sinful nature, just doing whatever we wanted, living however we desired, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. They were working at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, now Paul thinks about it this way. As we were here in our fleshful, fleshly nature, in our sinful past, our passions, our desires, they were aroused, he says, by the law. And again, Nathan's going to explain more about what that looks like next week. All that to say that the law came in and told us what was right and wrong, and our passions went, ooh, I like the wrong stuff. That's so exciting. That's so exhilarating. Let's go for it. And we do it every time. And that's the fruit of death. We're just bearing out the children of being bound by the law. Death. It's at work in our lives, and we die again and again. That's the old marriage. That's the old way, bearing the fruit of death. But here now, verse 6, now in Christ... We're released from the law. So now we can look at the law and say, oh, that's, that's good, but I'm not bound by it, but I, 
I want to do what's good. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. The law with its written structures and structure and do this and don't do that, that doesn't motivate us to please God in any way. We just look at the law and we go, oh, that's what i got to do now, so check the box and that's what I'll do. But now we've been freed. We've been free to look at the law, free from the law to go, okay, I want to please God because I love him. Because the spirit of God is in me and I desire to do what's right. I desire to please God because how great he is, how excellent he is. The new way is a life of liberation in the spirit, living out of the freedom we have to please God and to enjoy him forever. What Paul's really getting at here is our motivations. Why should we live to please God? Why should we obey him and do what his word commands? Legalism motivates us by fear. If you don't obey all the rules, you won't be accepted. If you don't check the boxes, you're out. So don't break the rules. Do what you're told. God will let you stick around the house a little bit longer. The new way, though, has a much greater motivation. It's the love of Christ. We're already accepted. We're already at peace with God. We already belong to Christ, and so we live a new life. We live as holy people because we've been given so much. We've been freed to love God. So we don't have to run around the house of God, as it were, in fear, like today's going to be the day that I finally make the big mistake and God's going to kick me out. We, by faith, have trusted Christ, so we're in, and he doesn't kick his children out. He may discipline and correct us, but he, but he doesn't in love. He brings it out of us. So that we follow him freely. We're in the house, we're secure, we're settled, so why should we please God? Because we're his children. He delights in us. We delighted him. That's the new way of the Spirit. Freed from sin, freed from trying to serve God based on the law. Now I think it's worth asking this question, why do you do what, what you do, religiously speaking? Why do you pray? Why do you attend worship services? Why do you obey God's word? Why do you give? some of you. Is it because of fear? Do you do these things because you are afraid that God won't love you, he won't accept you, or others will look down on you and go, oh, they're not a very good Christian. They're not a really good person. That's legalism. And its fruit is death. Nobody is a new person through legalism. But if you see that you belong to Christ, it changes everything. If you look at your motivations and you look at your actions and say, hey, I want to please God because I belong to him. I'm his child. He loves me. Well, Then it frees up everything. You're empowered to live a new way. We live in love to God. I think one of the most powerful ways that this has been illustrated or explained to me has been demonstrated in Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Mis. You think about the two main characters in that story, One man, Jean Valjean, is the convict. He's the guilty thief, the one who steals everything. And yet he's shown great mercy. And that mercy changes everything about his life. He becomes a better man in response to the mercy and grace that he has been given. The other man, Javert, he's the one who's followed the law all his life. In fact, he works for the law. He is a law enforcement agent He lives his whole life obeying the rules, keeping order, making sure everything is just and right and perfect, that everybody gets exactly what they deserve. And he's shown mercy too. The difference is how do they respond to that mercy? 
Valjean lived a life of generosity and compassion, charity to others because of the mercy he was shown. Javert becomes a slave. He becomes a slave to the law, finds no happiness at all. And when he's shown mercy, he doesn't know what to do with it, and he ends his life. Valjean was liberated to joy, and Javert was enslaved to death. Legalism kills. It could be encapsulated in the profound reality that is attributed to John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Belonging to Christ empowers a new way to serve. We're freed up, we're accepted, we're loved, but we can, we can please God in everything. So my friend this morning, let me ask you, what fuel are you using to help you grow in Christ? What motivation are you speaking to yourself to make you a new person? Is it follow the rules? Or is it because I belong to Jesus, I'm accepted, and I can chase hard after him? The law, legalism, is the wrong fuel. It leads to death. But because we belong to Jesus, we have everything we need to live new lives and to be new people. So again, what fuel are you using? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have liberated us from the law. Thank you that, that our status with you is loved and accepted. We are your children, not because we obeyed perfectly and did everything right and didn't get it all wrong. We're accepted because of what Jesus has done. So God, I pray this morning that we would live in your grace, that we would live as free people wed to Christ that we would become new people because we belong to you. Help us in this. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.